0: Welcome to episode nine of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co host of the Audio Judo Podcast, the parent show to this spin off limited series podcast. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you are interested in any genre of music, you need to check out Pantheon. I guarantee you'll be able to find a podcast that interests you. Please go to pantheonpodcast.com for a full list of their offerings. On this episode, your host Chris talks about the multi instrumentalist and composer Eric Dolphy, an innovator in free jazz and bebop. I had heard this name years ago on a Frank Zappa album called Weasels Ripped My Flesh from 1970 on a song called the Eric Dolphy Memorial Barbecue. I had no idea who he was, and when I was 16, there was no internet, so I had no efficient way to look that name up. So now I get, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story meet me here after the episode for some album recommendations and here's your host chris
1: I'd like to start this episode off by giving a quick recommendation for my parent podcast, Audio Judo. If you want to hear a personal take on a classic album like Purple Rain, or be reminded of a classic album you hadn't heard in years like Living Color's Vivid, or listen to an album you never imagined yourself listening to like Tears for Fears' Songs from the Big Chair, or hear more about an album you should have listened to 30 years ago like The Cure's Disintegration, or hear an interview like the guys did with album cover artist Aubrey Powell of Hypnosis, Steve Hackett from Genesis, Chris Tapp from the hot new band The Cold Stairs, or Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket. Give Audio Judo a shot. Every time they cover an album, I find myself needing to listen to that album. Matt and Kyle are amusing, they're insightful, they're full of personal anecdotes, and you're bound to learn a lot along the way by listening to Audio Judo. Secondly, I'd like to remind you that when I'm not vacationing with my family amid the scorching heat and thunderstorms of Florida, I generally post four to five songs of the day a week on the Audio Judo Does Jazz Facebook page. As of this podcast, I've posted over 60 songs by 60 different artists for you to review. By populating the world of jazz with songs and names and album covers, I present different options you can take in your journey of discovery. Finally, I want to let you know that I'm aware that there are hundreds of you out there listening to me these days. You are who I do this for. You are the ones helping to push me to do my best with each episode. From the audio judo fans giving me a try, to friends of mine supporting me, to Scott's friend in the UK, to Facebook friends in Pakistan, the land down under, and all throughout the world, I thank you for listening. And now, on with this episode about Eric Dolphy. Think of this episode as the first part of a trilogy of episodes related to one another. One day, my friend Scott came over to my apartment and asked, Hey Delisle, want to listen to the greatest song of all time? I said, yeah, I would like that very much. Scott had a great track record of knocking me out with one song or another. Funkadelic's Maggot Brain, Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue, and the Spaceman 3's cover of the Mudhoney song When Tomorrow Hits, just to name a few. My education in jazz had been rolling right along. Since my conversion on the road to Damascus, I'd hit on a dozen records or so. It was still new. The world still felt wide open. Scott pulled out a Charles Mingus record on vinyl, with Mingus on the cover sitting down on a yellow bench. The album is called Mingus at Antibes. Mingus had a quintet at this show in 1960. On this track, two saxes, one trumpet, bass, and drums. Scott went over to the record player and put the needle on side one, track one, Wednesday night prayer meeting. I pulled up a chair, Scott turned up the volume, and then the track starts with about 15 seconds of Mingus noodling on bass. And then the three horns play the melody, which is a bit of a call and response. Okay, I got it. If the word prayer in the title hadn't been obvious enough, this is somewhat of a religious song. At 51 seconds into the song, Ted Curson begins his trumpet solo. Around 107 or so, Mingus and Danny Richmond on drums turn up the pace. Okay, so it's one of those songs. It's a rollicking song. Wait a second, at 122 or so, the other two horns kick in. The pace is turned up even more, and it's an even more rollicking song. I imagine this is what great big band music does, with one section of horns prodding another section. Kirsten hits some high notes, and then he starts spitting notes like fire or bullets or something. The other horns drop out at Mingus's behest at 153, and Kirsten is backed by what sounds like the beginning of a drum solo. But no, that's just 15 seconds before the other horns start prodding Kirsten again. What's going on here? This is what church must sound like if the Holy Spirit actually turned up, something that never happened in the services I attended in my youth. This is the greatest trumpet solo I've ever heard. This guy is blowing holes through the roof. It's like a roller coaster ride, speeding up and climbing higher. At 2.46, the other horns are imploring him to reach higher, reach further, and the sounds they make transport me to some backwoods Southern Baptist church where the parishioners are feeling it. And when the saxophones can't take it anymore, Kirsten starts spitting notes like he's speaking in tongues around the 255 mark. He stops testifying at the 304 mark when Booker Irvin takes the spotlight with his tenor sax, barely giving the audience a few seconds to clap before beginning his testimony. At 334, the other two horns join in again, imploring him this time to speak the truth. Irvin strives for the upper reaches of his horn and begins to pull the audience with him. The other two horns... Behind him begin the rollicking situation again, and I dare say it's the most rollicking song I've ever heard. The other horns drop out, and it's just him with the rhythm section. And then it speeds up again, as the other horns implore. They implore. Even though I have no clue what they're doing physically, there's something circular in the sounds they are making. Are they beckoning the second coming? Is this the widening gyre of Yeats's poetry, with things falling apart and the center not holding? Hooker Irvin's solo is robust and soulful, slinking around the bass and drums. Within the context of the song, it's exactly what's needed. The effect of these two solos against the pushing and the prodding in the background is cumulative. My mind seeks refuge. I've got nothing to compare this to. My heart and soul, on the other hand, stand wide open, waiting to be filled. The song begins to crescendo again, with Curson leaping on Irvin's back to reach higher and higher notes at the 452 mark. This pushes Irvin to let out his final summation. When Eric Dolphy steps up to the mic with his alto saxophone at the 511 mark, Mingus implores him, Come on, Eric, and Dolphy begins his homily. How can I describe his playing? On this song, with his alto sax, he unleashes torrents of notes. He is a storm of ideas. Like the force, he surrounds you, he penetrates you, he binds you all together. At the 536 mark, the other two horns do their thing, but Dolphy is already beyond them. He needs neither a push nor a prod to go where he's going. Not sure the others needed it either, but the effect was there. At the 547 mark, he takes it a notch higher, spitting notes like a tommy gun from another era. But since this song has more religious connotations, maybe it's a rapid hymn or prayer? The other horns drop out, and it's just Eric, Mingus, and Danny. A brief respite for the other two horns, I guess. And then this happens at the 616 mark of the song. (laughs) ¶¶ he's off again. I can't catch my breath. At this point, anything could happen. Zombie apocalypse? The rapture? Maybe I could even kiss the girl I found attractive at the time? Anything that seemed impossible became possible. The cup has runneth over, and this song isn't close to being done yet. There's still five minutes to go. The other horns join in again. It's a locomotive of feeling and soulful exploration when Ted Kirsten tries to go over the top again at the 734 mark. And he keeps going. There are three parts of Dolphy's solo that I would like to have played for you. But if this interests you at all, please seek the song out. He finally ends his solo at the 815 mark. But it doesn't end there, of course. Danny Richmond starts in on his drum solo as Mingus walks over to the piano. I'm not sure if you enjoy drum solos, but he sure looks cool performing it I have included a video of this performance for you in the notes section. The three horns come in every now and then, and it's this ever-surging force around the 10-minute mark, with Mingus slamming the keys to emphasize that it's either the apocalypse or the rapture, or perhaps I'm kissing someone. Do you remember that Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs dresses up as Leopold the maestro? While conducting an opera singer at the Hollywood Bowl, he puts the singer through his paces with mere hand movements going high and low. After his initial display of mastery, he then lurches with both hands upwards, leaving his hand up high in the air, demanding the singer reach and sustain the highest note possible. His face turns numerous colors while hitting that note, and he eventually brings down the walls of the bowl around him. That's what should have been happening around this band while performing this song. I expected the whole place to be burning in flames and the walls coming down Jericho style. But no, the guys are just standing there, barely moving. The song goes on for another two minutes, but that performance of Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting had already wiped me out. Clearly, this had been the greatest song in the world for those 12 minutes of my life. High Fly, a song Eric Dolphy plays the flute on from the In Europe Volume 1 album. This might be my favorite solo album of his. He recorded it in September 1961, a very busy year for him. Why spend so much time in this episode on the listening experience of that one song? Because how many moments do we have like that in our lives? How many times do we witness pure inspiration? How many times do we experience pure joy? For someone like me who spent too much time thinking about the past, pondering the road not taken, believing life was elsewhere, hoping for some magical future where everything would work out for me. Listening to this song forced me into the present. It reminded me that there's more to life than whatever treadmill situation I had found myself in. There's a quote from Dolphy from an interview in 1964 where he stated,
0: When you hear music after it's over, it's gone in the air. You can never capture it again. Now, clearly, we can
1: all play our records over and over again and listen to the music that these fine musicians recorded decades ago, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living in the moment, not wanting to be elsewhere, but to want to be exactly where you are, experiencing what's happening right in front of you. If you're cooking or dancing or cycling or smelling the roses or looking into the eyes of the person you love, know that this moment is all that matters make the most of it. After hearing that song that night, I became a little obsessed with Eric Dolphy. He pushed an already incredible song into the stratosphere. While I still think Ted Kirsten's trumpet solo is my favorite trumpet solo, Dolphy's alto sax solo is my favorite solo of all time. I soon found out that not only did Dolphy play alto sax, but he played flute and bass clarinet as well. While he doesn't have much in the way of competition on bass clarinet, I think he's my favorite musician on all three of those instruments. It's no accident that he's such a fine musician. According to his parents, in an interview in 1975, he used to get up around 4.30, 5 o'clock every morning and practice his instrument as a child and play until he had to go to school. He would rush home and practice into the late hours of the night. For him, it was all music all the time. Born in Los Angeles in 1928, he began music lessons at the age of six studying clarinet and saxophone. While in junior high, he began studying the oboe, aspiring to a professional symphonic career. He received a scholarship at the time to study at the music school at the University of Southern California for two years. At Los Angeles City College, he played contemporary classical works by Stravinsky, along with jazz musicians like Art Farmer and Jimmy Nepper. He listened to everybody, from all the great classical composers of the day like Schoenberg, To Charlie Parker, to the birds in the backyard, to apparently field recordings of pygmy yodeling. Who knew? The sound coming out of each of Eric Dolphy's horns is unique. And yet, in my Charlie Parker episode, I described his alto saxophone playing to be more bird than bird. I know that's impossible. Perhaps he sounds what I wished bird sounded like. It can be an acquired taste. It's not for everybody. But you could say coffee and beer are an acquired taste as well. And I'm pretty sure half the world over likes at least one of those, so... was God Bless the Child, with Eric playing bass clarinet from the In Europe Volume 1 album. The song had been written and recorded by Billie Holiday in 1941, and no other version of God Bless the Child sounds anything like Eric Dolphy's version. Some of you might be saying, thank God. Now that's not nice. My layman ears can't really hear the link to the original song. I think Dolphy's version is one of those complete reinventions of a song akin to Jimi Hendrix completely remaking Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. If you research any critics' views on Eric Dolphy's recordings, the consensus choice for his best work or greatest artistic achievement is the 1964 album Out to Lunch. It has every essential, five-star, masterpiece, landmark LP superlative attached to it in everything you ever read about it. It's definitely got the personnel to back that claim up. He had the hottest drummer of the times on the session, Tony Williams from Miles Davis's band. He had a bassist he had worked with on several occasions within various lineups, Richard Davis. One reviewer described Dolphy's relationship with Davis as telepathic, as if they completed each other's thoughts. He had the ultimate 60s sideman trumpet player and his former roommate, Freddie Hubbard. And he had Bobby Hutcherson on Vibes, whose playing, Dolphy claimed, opened him up more, while pianos seemed to control you. On paper, it's about as fantastic an album an Eric Dolphy fan like myself could ask for. However, the only problem is that when I listened to it all those years ago, I didn't like it very much. That is to say, it didn't meet my expectations. That is also to say, I already had a handful of his solo albums, and I enjoyed them quite a bit. I liked what I heard in playing Coltrane's band. I absolutely loved what he played with Charles Mingus. I listened to him in a couple of other settings and loved those records as well. Why didn't I like the Consensus Masterpiece? What's up with me again? Can't I just like what everybody else likes? It took me a long time to figure it out. With his singular voice blasting out of his horns, Dolphy's playing usually elevated his material. He often elevates the players around him. But for me, I could barely find him in this record. It sounds to me like an interesting Tony Williams record. An interesting Bobby Hutcherson record. An interesting Richard Davis record. And Hubbard always sounds great. Where's My Guy? It didn't sound like his record at all. Perhaps Out to Lunch is similar to an Ornette Coleman record. It's democratic, with every musician pulling the material in their own direction. That may be why all the critics love it. But it's for this reason that I don't recommend listening to it right away. That was Gazzaloni from the Out to Lunch album. It's one of five songs that sound, to me, uncharacteristic of all the other Eric Dolphy albums I have. As I said, I wouldn't recommend this album to you right away. Unless you like what you hear, of course. What do I know? Don't let me be some jackass standing in your way of enjoying a five-star album. But if not Out to Lunch, where is the best place to start? The most obvious place to start would be his first two solo albums. He recorded Outward Bound and Out There just four months apart in 1960. The first is a quintet date with piano and trumpet, and the second is with a quartet featuring Ron Carter on cello. Each is a great example of an Eric Dolphy album, each with a display of his versatility, allowing all three of his instruments to shine. They won't shatter the earth beneath your feet, but they're both accessible, both distinctly dolphy I've been playing them for years, finding comfort in the sound of his artistry. That is the safest route in beginning to enjoy the music of Eric Dolphy. However, Dolphy rarely played it safe. The word bold comes to mind whenever I think of him, and in 2017, I proposed a bold approach towards building an Eric Dolphy collection. Following earlier posts I'd made on the Jazz Reddit and How to Build Collections by Mingus and Coltrane, I suggested beginners look into a 13-month or so time frame between October 1960 and November 1961. In those 13-plus months, he recorded over 25 albums worth of material, both live and in the studio. He recorded them as both a solo artist and as a sideman to some of the giants of the day. This approach gives you different options and different contexts in which to hear his singular voice. Through it all, he is always Dolphy. He recorded several albums with Mingus, several with Coltrane, several with trumpeter Booker Little, a couple with Oliver Nelson, and one each with Ornette Coleman, Mal Waldron, Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, Gunther Schuller, Ted Curson, George Russell, and Ron Carter. All of them are worthy additions to your collection. was Tenderly, a solo sax performance off Eric Dolphy's Far Cry album, an album he recorded on the same day after he performed on Ornette Coleman's free jazz album. Why did he end up on all these albums? It's not as if Dolphy had been a bankable star whose mere presence would sell more records. He's not Michael Jackson singing back up on Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me. He's an incredible musician, a professional whose artistic voice could not only fit within any musical situation but whose talent would set that record apart. By all accounts, he's a great guy. Charles Mingus called him a saint. He didn't drink or smoke or do drugs. Bobby Hutcherson tells a story of a practice session prior to the recording of Out to Lunch with a trumpet player named Eddie Armour. Apparently, he either thought the material to be too hard or bullshit. Mid-song, Eddie stopped, started cussing at Dolphy, calling him nasty. Basically told him and the band to F off and started leaving. Dolphy stopped him before he left. Told him that if you ever needed anything, don't hesitate to call me. I'll be there for you anytime. Hutcherson said it was a lesson in love conquering all. That's the kind of guy you want at your recording session. Probably more for his abilities, of course, but a musician like that raises your game. You don't want to be the weak link in the chain, so you try harder. You become better by striving to reach the standard he sets. Composers want their material brought out in the best light, performed up to its greatest potential. Last episode, I told my daughter that someday she would find friends who bring out the best in her. I think we can all agree that it's a good idea to seek out people who bring out the best in us. Seek out friends who will be there for us when the going gets tough. Seek out people who bring positivity into our lives. Seek out partners who love and not possess, control, or manipulate us. Seek out leaders who lead and not instill, fear, control, or manipulate us. Not only does it make life easier, but it helps to make better versions of ourselves. It's mathematical. In the Who song, Bargain, Pete Townsend wrote, It's like one and one don't make two, one and one make one. And I'm looking for that free ride to me, I'm looking for you. Personally, he's talking about his guru, Mayor Baba, trying to live that narrow path. It's a prayer. But practically, for the rest of us, that free ride to me and one and one make one refers to finding people in our lives who help you to become the best version of yourself. And Eric Dolphy helped make albums the best versions of themselves. Not everyone thought so. When Dolphy had been playing with John Coltrane's Classic Quartet in November 1961, Downbeat Magazine associate editor John Tynan wrote the following rant. I listened to a horrifying demonstration of what appears to be a growing anti-jazz trend exemplified by these foremost proponents of what is termed avant-garde music. I heard a good rhythm section go to waste behind nihilistic exercises of two horns. Coltrane and Dolphy seem intent on deliberately destroying swing, They seem bent on pursuing an anarchistic course in their music that can only be termed anti-jazz. Another Downbeat writer, Don DeMichael, wrote that Coltrane and Dolphy play on and on, past inspiration and into monotony. John Tynan and Don DeMichael, you ignorant sluts. Now that's kind of mean, but as writers for a jazz magazine like Downbeat, you have to know that at its core, jazz music is about the freedom of expressing oneself. At some point, that freedom is going to last longer than a couple of minutes or so. At some point, musicians are going to have grander ideas. At some point, they're going to go further than they went before. If an art form is going to live, if it's going to breathe, it's got to adapt to the times and change. Some artists are just visionaries, and they can see things before anyone else does. While I often rely on some critics for a little guidance, These people's opinions are no more important than your own. One of my friends once told me that one of my best qualities is that I didn't judge people. I suppose that's why I drew such a wide and varied crew to me through the years. Frankly, throughout most of my life, I just found it difficult to be critical, especially on the artistic front. I recognize the effort more than I've seen the fault lines. These days, as we all fight for our truths, put in this place against our will by those who profit the most from bending the realities that we live in, the Peter Baelishes of the world, it's getting a lot harder not to judge. As Colonel Kurtz once said, it's judgment that defeats us. Does that sound like anti-jazz to you? That's the Fats Waller song, Jitterbug Waltz, as performed by Eric Dolphy here on flute from the Conversations album in 1963. Coltrane's response to the question of what he and Dolphy were trying to do with their music is this. I think the main thing a musician would like to do is to give a picture to the listener of the many wonderful things he knows of and senses in the universe. That's what music is to me. It's just another way of saying this is a big, beautiful universe we live in. It's been given us, and here's an example of just how magnificent and encompassing it is. That's what I would like to do. I think that's one of the greatest things you can do in life. We all try to do it in some way. The musician's way is through his music. Music is a reflection of the universe, like having life in miniature. Take that, John Tynan and Don DeMichael. Coltrane didn't take too kindly to the criticism. He said, They made it appear that we didn't even know the first thing about music. It hurt me to see Dolphy get hurt in this thing. I think there's plenty of evidence that both Coltrane and Eric Dolphy know a lot more than the first thing about music. Eric recorded a couple of albums worth of material in 1963, Conversations in Iron Man. He would go on to record Out to Lunch, and would appear on another five-star, classic, essential, landmark LP, Andrew Hill's Point of Departure in 1964. We will discuss that album and another album he appeared on, Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth, in a future episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz on collaborations. On a personal note, I just want to thank Eric Dolphy for the role model that he was, both artistically and as a man. In the days when things like skydiving and getting a tattoo seemed like a viable option in my life, a picture of him playing sax is on his Far Cry album cover it have been a serious contender as a tattoo I would get. Now, neither of those things are ever going to happen, but the sentiment is still felt. We will resume Eric's story in our next episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz when he joins Charles Mingus's band for some of the greatest live shows I've ever heard in 1964. God bless you. All my love, Chris.
0: And that is Eric Dolphy. Thank you so much, Chris. Like I've said, I've never been a huge fan of jazz before, but without a doubt, Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting is my favorite jazz song. Chris had these recommendations for further listening. As a leader, Outward Bound, Out There, Far Cry, Live at the Five Spot, Eric Dolphy in Europe Volume 1, Musical Prophet, The Iron Man Sessions. And as a sideman, Charles Mingus, Mingus at Antibes, John Coltrane, Ole Coltrane, Max Roach, Percussion Bittersweet, and George Russell, Aesthetics. Pick one up, give it a listen, drop us a line, tell us what you think. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash does jazz. Twitter at audiojudo jazz. Or you can email us at jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email Chris at chris at audiojudo com, dot com directly. Also, if you're interested in finding some non jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more at audiojudo.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>